0: I wonder this morning if this resume came across our desk and we were seeking to fill a position if indeed we would give this guy the time of day. His resume would read, Fisherman rescued while drowning because I took my eyes off of Jesus, I was the first apostle to call Jesus Messiah. I was the only apostle to be called Satan. And I preached the first sermon in the early church. His name, of course, is Peter. The title of the sermon today is Cultivating a Culture of gracious correction. There is no way that Peter made it to preach the first sermon unless somewhere, somehow, Christ corrected him. There is much talk about corporate culture today. When we think of corporate or organizational culture... It is defined as the underlying beliefs, assumptions, and values that affect how people interact with one another. Underlying beliefs, assumptions, and values that affect how people interact with one another. Someone has said culture never goes to sleep. What does that mean? It means that when the employees of an organization or its leaders lie down at night, that organization isn't effectively working. The strategy is asleep. But the culture of that organization is wide awake. Somewhere, somebody is talking and saying, they are, and they fill in the blank. This is who they are. As many of you know, Trent is back in the regiment of doctors, and and visits another tomorrow. And long after his visit, our experience at Chapel Hill is that every single doctor we have ever seen has the same ethic of care. It's profound. They all ask the same questions. They all work the same. Way they all take the same detail. Somewhere somebody has, has enculturated that massive hospital or at least the otolaryngology department uh, because they all do and say the same thing and act the same way. And so long after we've left. We'll talk about that. Why? The culture of that hospital doesn't go to sleep. Neither does the culture of a church. When we aren't preaching on Sunday, somebody's talking on Tuesday. When we are not having services here somewhere, somebody is saying something about what God is or isn't doing here. And so the question this morning is, do we have a culture of gracious correction? That's what this passage is about. It's written to a group of people, and all the commands are plural. They're plural. They're for multiple people. And so they're simple, and I I don't want to ever improve or Uh, attempt to improve on god's word Uh, here we go the first one is straighten up it's right here in scripture therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed So the old saying in in Scripture study, when you see therefore, look to see what it's there for. And therefore is there to reference the discipline of God. When God disciplines you, straighten up. That's the point. When God disciplines His children, the family, all of us, his family can respond in one of two ways. We can either kick them while they're down or we can help them straighten up. All right, we can either kick people while they're down or we can help them straighten up. The word ortho appears in both 12 and 13 orthopedics, orthodontics, right? Straighten limbs, straighten teeth. Ortho. Lift comes from the root word ortho, and make straight comes from the root word ortho. What is the problem then? The problem is crooked hands, crooked knees, and crooked paths. All right? The problem is crooked hands, crooked knees, and crooked paths. Why? Sin does that. Sin disjoints, sin makes straight things crooked. Sin is a power. Listen to a sermon recently by Tim Keller where he referred to the power of sin. He said, sin is the suicidal action of the self against itself. Sin is ultimately self-destructive. It is never good It never serves you, it never helps you, it never advances you, it only destroys, it only defeats, it only denigrates. In Numbers, there's a fascinating event. The people are rescued from Egypt where they had to make bricks without straw. They had to serve. Their people served as slaves for 400 years. And the people complained, they're free now, in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, he was angry. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed outlying parts of the camp. That's discipline. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Notice Moses attributed with uh, authoring uh, the first five books of the Old Testament how he refers to those in his charge, now the rabble. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we have meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Are you kidding me? You were slaves. And you say it cost you nothing? Notice what's happened to them. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. The fish cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. All we got to eat is manna. We want something besides manna. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves Later, for tomorrow, you shall eat meat, God says. I'll give you what you want. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month. Uh, This is gross. Until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have went before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? What is God saying here? You want meat to eat? I'll give you meat to eat. I'll give you meat to eat until it's running out of your nostrils. That's nasty. That's sickening. I have my notes here in my journal from... uh, from Keller's sermon called "Sin is Slavery." In it, this is what he says: Sin is not just an action; it's a power. It dulls the emotions so that we crave, we desire something strongly that should not elicit that much desire. That was the testimony on the screen this morning: meth in my mind, fixed my problem. Secondly, if it affects the thinking. We remember the fish. Their thinking is gone. They're, they've forgotten the beatings, days without adequate food, pyramids that they have helped to build, and they remember the fish. It affects the thinking. Third, it affects the will. Our strength, they say in numbers, is dried up. Uh, the next time math comes around, I can't say no. I want it now, I want it again, and I want it again. I can't get enough. Sin does that. Sin devastates part of the responsibility of a local church is to help make the crooked straight. It's our job. Straighten up, number two, strive. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Remember, these commands are to all of us together. They're plural. The word strive means to run swiftly in order to catch something, to work diligently. That's what it means to strive. Why are we told to strive for peace with everyone and holiness? Because it doesn't come easy. You don't have to strive for something that is easy to catch, that is easy to get. Peace isn't easy, holiness isn't easy. Neither are easy things. So when we as a congregation, as a body, as a family, strive for peace and strive for holiness, it becomes enculturated. It becomes what people talk about on Tuesday night. Oh, that place over there, they strive for peace with everyone and they strive to live holy lives. If you go to that place You're expected to love and be loved, and you're expected to live for God. It becomes part of who we are. Peace without holiness leads to immorality. Let's say if we just strive for peace, so I'm never going to call you out, I'm never going to speak truth to you in love, then that leads to all-out immorality. Holiness without peace leads to legalism. Holiness without peace. I'm only going to call you out, but I do not do it in love. Then I will take whatever it is I use to call you out, and it becomes a club with which to beat you. You cannot have one and be healthy unless you have the other. There must be peace, and there must be holiness. There must be holiness, and there must be peace. They must coexist. Uh, there's a story. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God and uh, with all your soul, strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. I would say to you this morning, if you can love God and others, you got it. If you can can love God and you can truly love others like you love yourself. Now, there's a catch in that. I guarantee you, you try for 30 minutes to love others exactly like you love yourself and you'll fall short. I guarantee you that if you see somebody else who wants your coffee, you will not go give it to them. You love yourself more. We, we struggle to love others like we love ourselves. We struggle to be as kind to others as we are to ourselves. We just struggle. So the lawyer didn't get it. And he asked a question, well, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. All right, so what do you have between a priest and a Levite? You've got holiness without peace. You've got law without love. That's what you have, but... Here it is. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had what, church? All right, so in this we find the true definition of strife. You have a Levite, you have a priest, they they ought to know, they they serve in God's temple, right? But then you have a Samaritan. What's the significance of the Samaritan? There's several historical uh, context gives us understanding of this, the significance of the Samaritan. What is it? Well, first of all, Samaritans were not fully Jews and they were not fully Assyrians, uh, when when uh, Assyria Israel, overthrew Israel, 722 B.C., the Assyrians extracted Jews and they replaced them with Assyrians. And the Assyrians and the Jews married and they created Samaritans. And the Samaritans lived in Samaria and they were outcast. They knew what it meant to live on the wrong side of the tracks. So they were outcasts. They had their own religious system. Don't know if you realize that. They worshipped in their temple on Mount Gerizim, whereas the, the rest of the Jews worshipped in their temple in Jerusalem. Right? Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. She's Samaritan. That's why they get into these worship wars. Number three, the Samaritans believed in no prophet after Moses. They stopped at Moses. They believed there were no prophets after Moses. And they believed that when the Messiah came, he would be the new Moses. So they didn't line up with the Jews when it came to their beliefs, the rest of the Israelites either. There are so many differences going on here. And this is the God Jesus chooses to say he stops and he helps. And notice what he does. The lawyer says, Well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers his question with another question. Why? Because he's Jesus and he's stinking brilliant. Right? He's Jesus and he can. He's Jesus and he is the man. And so he says, who was a neighbor to the guy? Why? It's easy to find your neighbor. That's easy. It's easy to find somebody who needs your help. It's hard to be the neighbor. You have to strive for that. In this local church, we have to strive for peace and strive for holiness. And it may mean that when you're on a journey, you get detoured. And when you get detoured, you stop and help, you stop and give a hand. You take time out of your day, your week, and you help. That's what it means. Number three, see to it. See to it is one word in the Greek, and it is where we get our word overseer, episkopos, elder, overseer. But here we are told that all of us are called by God to function in that role. We're all overseers, all of us, for one another. That's our job. It is our job to see how, two or three things, three actually, that no one fails to obtain God's grace. That no one fails to obtain God's grace. People, when they are being disciplined by God, can fail to obtain the grace of God. How? Here's the next thing. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. A person under the discipline in hand of God for his or her sin can, if not graciously corrected by a gracious church, become bitter. They can become bitter. And bitterness is called a root. That no root of bitterness, a bitter root... Produces bitter fruit every time, all day, every day. Years ago, several years ago, we had a kid uh, live with us from, uh, from the Middle East. His name was Fadi. E. He was an exchange student. He lived with us, and he was sixteen, and so I, I thought I'd put him to work one day, and I said, "Fadi, e, I've got this uh, some stuff that needs trimming in this crepe myrtle over here." I just need it trimmed. I don't know exactly how they do it over there. uh, But when he got finished, there wasn't much left. I mean much at all. It was a beautiful crepe myrtle, white flowers. It it was growing. It was fantastic. I had made sure to keep all the shoots down off the trunk so that beautiful trunk on a crepe myrtle would grow up and all the flowers would come at the top where crepe myrtles look best if they do. And, uh, and, and it does that no longer (laughs) to this day. It doesn't like he, he took care of it. Every time I'm in the, in the garden, I, I, in the yard, I go, fatty. Right? I'll never forget the kid as long as I live in this house and see my maimed crepe myrtle. It is so bad that, that the way he did it, that things only shoot out like sideways. It's ugly. It's awful. So what did I do? I just got a chainsaw and I cut it off. Just cut it off at the bottom. Done with the crepe myrtle. No, not really. Why? Because underneath the ground is a root. And that root produces shoots. And so now, three times a season, I have to take my snips and I curse fatty every time. (laughs) And I trim these ugly, awful shoots that come out of the root. Now, here's what I want to say to you. The metaphor of a root is chosen by the writer of Hebrews intentionally. Why? Because some of you, the problem now in your marriage isn't from your husband. It's from a root that is shooting out fruit. He didn't cause it. He just gets the bitter fruit. It's the other guy who did that to you. It's the, the awful case, as this girl described this in the video, the abuse that can produce the bitter root that produces the bitter fruit. You, you grow up not trusting good people because people who should have been good weren't. They abused you as a child. And now that bitter root produces bitter fruit. And the reality is that it can lie there unseen, unnoticed, undealt with until the shoots start coming up and the fruit is undeniable and everybody around you feels it sees it suffers from it your bitter root one root can produce a thousand shoots over a lifetime so, so how do I take care of what I affectionately have titled Fat ease, Failure? How, how do I do that? Uproot it. There's no other way. That's what counseling does. That's what a life group does. That's what being in a body of believers where there's gracious correction does. It uproots bitter roots that produce bitter fruits. Third, see to it. Alright, that no one fails to obtain God's grace, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become many become defiled. That word defiled means to die with another color, to stain. All right, if that word were paint, that's probably pretty easy. You can remove it. Stain goes deep, doesn't it? Your bitterness perhaps has stained your family. It has stained your friends. It has stained your work relationships. It is stained. And people dodge you. People try to get out of your way. People, why? Because the stain runs in your path. Third, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. This seems out of place until you consider the power of sin. Esau sold his birthright for one bowl of stew. Just one. One bowl of stew. Well, what was the birthright? After, in Esau's day, a father died, then the inheritance, the birthright, went to the oldest son, The firstborn, and he assumed the father's authority and responsibilities. So the birthright meant I'm now in charge. And secondly, it meant he got twice the inheritance of all the other siblings. But he lost that. And he sought for it. And he looked for it. But he couldn't get it back. All right, so that's disturbing. We can't just slide over it. What does that mean? What does it mean? We might reword this command as see to it that none of you waste your life. Don't waste your life. I would ask you this morning... What is it that you are pursuing that is wasting your life? If there is bitterness underneath, that bitterness will cause you, without trying, to pursue things that will waste your life. Sometimes these things are clear and outright measurable addictions... Alcohol is a fruit, not a root. Pornography addiction is a fruit, not a root. Your anger ongoing is a fruit, not a root. Your eating disorder is a fruit, not a root. Your workaholism is a fruit, not a root. In order to get this, there's got to be some excavation. There's got to be a digging underneath. And you've got to submit yourself to the oversight of your life group, to the oversight of this body of believers to the oversight of people who will care for your soul and care for you and care for why it is that you are again entangled with the sin that trips you up. You and I need regular and consistent and daily help We must have a culture of gracious correction, a culture of gracious repentance. We must celebrate the one who was lost out of the 99 who comes home. We must celebrate the one who blows it, realizes it, and says, I'm sorry, I'm done. Receive me back. We must be known as the church who has this culture of gracious correction who says when you wonder we're chasing you down we're going after you we're pursuing you we won't give up until you like Esau say I've had enough and when you like Esau say I have had enough we have no choice but to back off and let your sin play out to its awful evil consequences This must be us. Oh God, let us err on the side of looking like fools and looking like idiots. Oh God, let us err on the side of scooping down and stepping into the muck and the mire of sin. Oh God, let us err on the side of pursuing the erring sinner and seeing God rescue yet another. Amen? Let that be who we are. (coughs) This is what is spelled out here. James, my brothers, if anyone among you, not outside of you, what does it say, class? Among you. Say it again. What? Among you. you. Wonders. (laughs) From the truth. And you go on a rescue mission and bring him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's easy to uncover sin, isn't it? It's hard to cover it with grace. That's hard work. Should have just now populated on my blog When we do counseling with couples here at Grace, you may not know, but we we have an eight or nine week, very regimented, been developed by Steve and Angela Merritt who oversee that ministry, myself, others in training. We have eight or nine weeks that we go through with couples. Week two or three, we talk about what we call the hard model. Hard, H-A-R-D. The H stands for hurt. Hurt is going to come in your life, in your marriage, at your workplace. Hurt will come. Uh, If you live trying to avoid it, then you won't live. Unresolved hurt, however, leads to the A which is anger. Unresolved hurt leads to anger. If you try to sit on your anger and pretend it doesn't exist, unprocessed anger leads to resentment. If you do not process your anger towards your spouse, you will have a bitter root that begins to produce bitter fruit. Unconfessed resentment leads to destruction. H-A-R-D. Hurt to anger to resentment. And then finally, destruction. Destructions come in the forms of addictions... Affairs. Abuse. Destruction is, as the word says, destructive. I am here to say to you this morning, and we're done, that there was one who ultimately came to make all the crooked paths straight. He is the ultimate orthopedist. He who knew no sin became yours and my crookedness. That we might with crooked hearts live straight lives that he might take that old heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Christ was broken and bruised so that you would be put back together and healed. And as the young woman shared, that is where the excavation of the bitter root must begin. At the cross, where his blood will sink deep into the soil of your life and do what no one else can do. At the end of our time, I'll be up here. If you need to talk, please come. Lord, we as your body So desire that no one goes on in unrepentant sin and forgoes your grace by refusing it. Help us to be those who strive, who see to it, And do the hard work of gracious correction. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go, go with this truth embedded in your heart. And in your groups this week, process this out. I'm just telling you, hearing it this morning is not near enough. God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.